Then Joseph could not control himself before all of those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near me, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will, be, there will yet, yet be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant of, on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when he, they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I'm, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about so that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Good morning, church. It's good to see everyone this morning, and I would add my thanks to Allison for that uh, wonderful testimony. And I know many of us could resonate with what she experienced. Well, next week we begin a new series of messages that's going to take us throughout the entire summer. It's a series called Scrabble. And uh, no, it's wonderful words, right? And uh, there are so many important, what I would call first tier uh, doctrines. You know, you have first tier and second tier and third tier. You know, third tier should never divide Christians. And the first tier doctrines, these are the ones that are like, man, you, this is, these are, wow, okay. And many of these doctrines are encapsulated just in one word or a, an important facet of that doctrine is in one word. And so we're going to spend the summer really just kind of in discipleship mode, Hope, hopefully just building a, a, another layer, a depth to our Christian faith and to our understanding of God and the gospel. So I hope you'll be faithful to attend or tune in this summer for that series. Well, our passage that we read this morning, it's clear that um, some things have happened in the life of Joseph since last week's message was him, you know, being in Potiphar's house and all that good stuff, right? Uh, so let's recap what happens in the story of Joseph so that we're all level set. Some of you, you know the story really well. Some of you, you don't know anything about Joseph hardly. So here's where we are. Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers who hated him. 
the slavers sit, take him to Egypt where he comes into Potiphar's house and he rules and he does well, but then he's falsely accused by his wife of rape and he's imprisoned. And Potiphar clearly doubted the accusation because he was the Pharaoh's chief executioner and he doesn't kill Joseph. Instead, he actually puts him in a more of a white collar prison rather than the normal prison that, you, that people got sent to for serious crimes. In that prison, he meets a couple of men. He interprets their dreams. Both of them are servants in the house of Pharaoh, baker and steward. And ultimately, Pharaoh has some dreams that are troubling him. Nobody can interpret what these dreams mean. And one of those prisoners remembered this guy in prison who told me what my dreams meant, and they were true interpretations. Joseph comes. He explains to, to Pharaoh that his dreams represent what is about to happen over the next 14 years. That God was going to prosper Egypt for seven years. There would be great harvest of in their farmlands of grain and the cattle would have much offspring. But then there would come seven years of devastating famine that would just devastate the country. And so Pharaoh was so impressed with Joseph that he invests in him the authority to prepare for that famine. Ultimately, Joseph becomes the second most powerful man in the Egyptian empire outside of Pharaoh himself. He's the prime minister of Egypt. And so the, the, they prepare, and then two years into the famine, Jacob, Joseph's father, who lives in Canaan, who believes that Joseph is dead because the brothers lied to him. He, he sends the 10 brothers who schemed against Joseph to Egypt to buy grain. They arrive and Joseph recognizes them, but they of course don't recognize him. It's been almost 25 years now or more and they think he's dead. And so he begins to put them to the test. He, he treats them roughly the Bible tells us. He, he begins to question them and grill them and act suspicious towards them. And then he accuses them of actually being spies who've come to see how bad it is in Egypt so maybe they can lead an army to invade. And they begin to protest, but he treats them rougher, puts them in prison for a little while and brings them back and forth. And as he's trying them, what he's really doing is probing to see, you know, have his brothers changed? from the ungodly jerks that they were to something different. And in the middle of one of those events, the brothers, Reuben turns to his other brothers and in their language, which of course Joseph can understand, but they think he can't, he says, brothers, all of this tribulation from this Egyptian leader is coming upon us as judgment by God because of the horrible way that we murdered our brother Joseph. His sin, the innocent, his innocent blood is on our hands, and essentially that bill is now coming due. For the first time, we get a glimpse that over the succeeding 25 years, these men had begun to come to know God the way Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew God. In fact, I wish we had time to really go through all these chapters and show you how Jacob himself has just become this really incredible man of godly, mature faith. That, that, that event that we studied on the river where he, he struggled and wrestled with the Lord Jesus and he was converted and his name was changed from Jacob to Israel, that, that that was a real conversion. And in the years since then, he has become this man who walks by faith like his fathers Abraham and Isaac walked by faith. 
So Joseph sees this and he's hopeful. And so he devises a scheme. He says, you can prove to me that you're not spies. You mentioned a younger brother, Benjamin. Go back to Canaan, bring me Benjamin. And if he's really, and if he really exists, I'll believe that you weren't spies, but just to be certain you return, I'm keeping one of you and you'll be put in prison until the others return and prove your story. Simeon's put in jail, the the brothers leave, they get down the road, they open up some of their grain, they realize all of the money that they had spent to buy grain has been returned and they're afraid. It's like, what is this? They get back to Canaan, they see their father, Jacob. They explain why Simeon isn't with them. And they say, we need to take Benjamin back to Egypt so that we can get Simeon freed. And he refuses. He says, absolutely not. I've already lost one son of my uh, beloved Rachel. I'll not take the risk with my only remaining son from her, Benjamin. And so he refuses. But in time, they run out of grain. They have to go back to Egypt to get more grain. And so the brothers convince Jacob to let them take Benjamin. Judah himself, ironically, the one who scheme, you know, put together the scheme and encouraged all the other brothers to kill Joseph. Judah steps forward and says, Dad, if anything threatens the life of Benjamin, I will give my life in exchange to him. I'll ensure that he comes back to you. They go back to Egypt. They're received by Joseph. He gives them a royal feast. And, and they, they look at one another and wonder, how is it that they are placed in seats in exact chronological birth order? How did he do that, you know? And they don't recognize him. And so Joseph in this feast, he sees his little brother who he hasn't probably seen since he was maybe four or five years old. And he talks to him and Joseph is so overcome. He has to rush out of the room because he's just weeping at this reunion. He comes back, they finish the feast, he gives all the guys their grain, he has the steward put all their money back in the bags again, but now he puts a twist into it. He takes his special silver cup, a cup that's a symbol of his office as the prime minister, and he has them put it in the bag of Benjamin and he allows the men to begin their journey back to Canaan. They get a little ways out of town and he sends soldiers after them and they say, somebody has stolen the prime minister's cup. You guys are are criminals. You're not who you have been pretending. And so they bring him back to Joseph and there's this scene of just uh, objection and no, we're not like this and everything else. And, And so they finally agree. They're so confident they didn't steal the cup. They finally agree that the person, if, if that cup is discovered among them, the person who took it will, will be at Joseph's disposal to, to, to be executed or to become a slave. They open up the bags and of course the cup is in Benjamin's bag. The brothers are just absolutely devastated. And at this point, again, Judah steps forward, giving evidence that yes, God has done an incredible redemptive work in his life. And he gives this impassioned speech in chapter 44 where he pleads with Joseph to please don't take Benjamin, take me instead. And he tells how their father had almost died at the loss of their other brother, who was, who was killed. And, and if they take the, the message back that Benjamin is now, he said, it'll kill him. It'll kill our father. Please take me instead. Do with me whatever you want. That's what leads us up to chapter 45. 
the climactic point in the story of Joseph where he reveals who he is. He breaks into their language and he screams at them, I am Joseph. And he's weeping and he's looking at them with wonder and love and they are dumbstruck. That's one of those moments in history you wish you had a, photo, a photograph of people's pic, uh, faces. Because you know, you know, you hear about jaws hitting the floor. This is jaws hitting the floor time, right? They're dumbfounded. They, 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 they're not computing. And he has to repeat it to convince them that yes, he is Joseph. And they are reunited. And from here, as the story goes on, they return and they bring Jacob and all of their family down to Egypt. Jacob meets with Pharaoh and he blesses Pharaoh, which maybe says something about how the people of God should interact with political figures who aren't very godly. <laughs> but he blesses Pharaoh and Pharaoh employs the entire family since they're shepherds to look after his flocks and he settles them in the most fertile portion of Egypt where his flocks were feeding and grazing. And there in the land of Goshen, the family will live and they will prosper and become rich. And for 17 years, Jacob lives in Egypt until he dies. And there's this massive processional where in both in Egypt where they mourn this patriarch and they take him back to Canaan and they bury him and then they return to take up their life. The book of Genesis ends shortly after the passage that Jacob read to us. Joseph will ultimately die at the age of 110, and as he dies, he gives a statement of faith that is so profound that he's included in Hebrews chapter 11 among the, the heroes of the faith that we have looked at several times this last year, where he solicits from them a promise that when God takes the people in the future out of the land of Egypt, back to the land that God had promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, when that occurred, they were to take his body, his bones, and bury them with his father as he looked in faith to the fulfillment of that covenantal promise. And the book ends. So the question for us is why? Does God end Genesis with this story of Joseph that lasts about 25% of the entire book? What's the point of this life story? Well, at very least, we need to consider the original audience to whom it was written. These people, these Israelites, they're standing on the banks of the Jordan River. As children, many of them had been born in this polytheistic Egypt, a a nation that had 2,000 gods. They were interacting with cultures that had multiple gods. They had seen their parents rebel and reject against the very God who says all the other gods are false. There's only one true God, me, Jehovah. And they had watched their parents rebel against this God who had freed them from the 400 years of slavery that they would end up enduring in Egypt as a generation arose that did not remember Joseph. They rebelled against him and these children watched their parents die because of their sin. And now they stand as adults grown, on the banks of the Jordan River, and they're given this task, an important task within the overall redemptive plan of God to invade Canaan, the Palestine, the promised land, to conquer it, to drive out all the people and their false gods, and to settle it in accordance with God's promises to Abraham and the covenant he made with him. And so over those last 40 years, God, through Moses, had been revealing himself to this generation 
And in this whole book, the entire book of Genesis, all these stories and the way they're related from Moses to these people is intended for them to understand who God is. It's intended for us to understand who God is. And the most central important truth in this entire book that we see in the story of Joseph is that God is faithful to his covenant people. And he sovereignly works out his good plan in our lives and in our world. This morning, as we finish up this series of messages, 30-something sermons now, and this annual theme of by faith, and we're going to finish it this morning as we finish the book of Genesis, and we're going to do so by taking this statement and really breaking it down into its two parts. First of all, that God is faithful to his covenant people. For the Israelites to the to the uh, early church, to Christians in the 21st century here in Palm Bay, you guys, Genesis reveals that God absolutely is holy. He's absolutely holy and he hates sin. Yet he pours out his grace on sinners and he brings them into relationship with him. We saw this in Adam, we saw this in Noah, in Abraham. We even see it in Jacob and then Judah, who we mentioned a moment ago is responsible for wanting to kill his brother Joseph. I I skipped a chapter where Judah is so deviant in his behavior, I couldn't cover it in a church service where children are present. And yet this guy ultimately repents and becomes someone who follows our heavenly father. And God uses him and through him, ultimately David is going to be born and Jesus is born. He's faithful even to Judah who commits such heinous acts. And certainly we see God's faithfulness to Joseph as his covenant child. In verse five, he says to his brothers, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land. You see God's faithfulness to Joseph. He takes a young man who was sold into slavery. He takes him to a wonderful home where he proves himself. He's falsely accused. He goes to prison. He becomes prime minister in the land. And why does he do all of this? Why is he so faithful to Joseph through all of these trials and tribulations? Because he's being faithful to Jacob and to the descendants of Jacob. And he's using and working through Jacob, through Joseph to, in a way to rescue all of these covenant people and allowing them to grow into a great nation so that when the exodus occurs, they're so numerous that they can conquer the promised land. You see his faithfulness to Joseph throughout his journey as slave and prime minister. There's this touching scene at the end of Jacob's life where again, God is faithful to Joseph. Uh, Joseph, uh, Jacob sends for Joseph. He knows he's about to die. He wants to give his blessing to Joseph. And so 
Joseph brings his two sons, Manasseh, his oldest, and Ephraim, his next son. And he puts Manasseh before Jacob's right hand, a hand of blessing for the oldest child. And, and he puts Ephraim before his left hand. And he asks his dad to bless his, him by blessing his sons. And so Jacob, at the time of blessing, crosses his arms and he puts his hand, primary hand of blessing on the head of the younger son and his other hand on the head of the older son. And so once again, in the book of Genesis, at the very end, we are seeing something we have seen multiple times, how God contravenes all normal human expectations and he uses the lesser to do the greater things. And God, Jacob gives his blessings to Ephraim over Joseph's, over Joseph's objections. But Joseph says, relax. Jacob says, relax, Joseph. Both of your boys are going to become men of great renown. And what you see later, 400 years later, when, the, when Israel enters into the promised land, the 12 tribes of, of Israel that divide up the land, the Levites are not given a section of land. They live everywhere as priests. You don't see a section of land called Joseph. You see the 10 older brothers at minus Levi, and then you see land for Ephraim and land for Manasseh. And Ephraim and Judah were the two strongest of the tribes of Israel going forward in their history. God certainly blessed Joseph, and God does faithfully bless his covenant children. Secondly, God sovereignly works out his good plan in our lives and in our world. Now, God has accomplished his work throughout the book of Genesis through sinners, even the sins of his covenant people, right? We've seen this numerous times throughout the book, how God is not going to let the evil deeds, the sin of humanity stymie his sovereign plan. He works in and through and around all of our junk, all of our pain, all of our sin in this world, and he does so to accomplish his good plan for our lives and his plan for this world, which is good. We saw this in the garden with Adam. All the way back to the beginning, how God does this, and he promises the seed that will come through Adam's line, and then through Seth, and then through Abraham, and ultimately through Judah and David, and we know that it was Jesus. We see this in the biblical heroes of this book. We've seen it over and over again, how Abraham didn't always live too godly, did he? Yet God sovereignly superintended even the sin of Abraham to bring about his good plan in Abraham's life. We saw it with Laban and how he tried to deceive and work against and scheme against Jacob. And God would turn those sinful plans against Laban for the blessing of Jacob. And again, we see it here with Joseph. And in the lives of his brothers, how God accomplishes his work even through sin and evil. In chapter 50, with that scene where his brothers come to him, Joseph says to them, or they say to him, behold, we are your servants. But jo Joseph said to them, do not fear, for I am in the place, for am I in the place of God? As for me, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. 
Do you you see the significance of what Joseph is saying here to his brothers? Guys, yeah, what you did was horrendous. It was rotten. It was evil. You tried to kill me, man. (laughs) You wanted me dead. You meant evil, but God meant good. And what God means is what happens. And so while you meant evil, God worked through your evil to bring about the good that he knew all of us actually needed. And it carried forward his plan. This is the way God works. God is sovereignly working for good, even in some of the most horrific world events, actually in in every horrific world event. Let me make sure I'm precise there. You get a great example of this hundreds of years later in the Bible. You'll see where the Israelites had disobeyed God repeatedly. And finally, through the Isaiah and Jeremiah, he announces that judgment was coming that they were going to be sent into exile, that Jerusalem was gonna be destroyed, the temple was gonna be destroyed. He was gonna use the Babylonians to come in as his hand of righteous judgment and that their sins were gonna be called into account. A horrific genocide occurred, a horrific genocide. The worst crimes against humanity, the things that just boggle our mind occurred in that campaign and the few remaining Israelites were then taken into exile and they were put back into Babylon and there they were wallowing in their misery. How God had abandoned them and why did this happen and everything else. And so God through Jeremiah tells them, listen, this has happened because of your sin. Now repent, return to me. You're gonna be here for 70 years. Flourish in the city where I have planted you. Serve the good of the city project my name and proclaim who I am to the people around you. And then he gives this incredible summary statement of hope and promise. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Yes, you've had horrible things occur to you, but these things are going to ultimately work for your good. Church, the central focus of God's redemptive plan hinges on God working through evil, wicked, sinful deeds of humanity. The early church understood this. In in the fall, actually probably all of next ministry year or most of next ministry year, we're gonna go through the book of Acts. And one of the passages in Acts that is absolutely my favorite is Acts chapter four, where the early church is gathered together and they're praying because Peter and John had been arrested and were being persecuted by the religious authorities. And listen to their prayer, because this prayer is filled with understanding of this truth that we have here in Genesis. And they heard, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. 
Do you see the significance of that? That's one of those wonderful words that we're going to get into this summer, right? In other words, these people gathered together and shouted crucify him and murdered the innocent son of God. Why? Because your sovereign plan predestined it. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. See, for the early church, the truth of God's sovereignty and his faithfulness to his covenant people, it was a truth that motivated them to proclaim the gospel boldly because they were confident that God was in control of it all. It wasn't going to fail. They would be used by him to carry out his plan. This is deep stuff. We're gonna go a little deeper this summer. There's all kinds of questions. How can this be true? And yet God not be responsible somehow for humanity's sin? How does he, how does he sovereignly rule this way and not you know, have any a level of responsibility for those sinful deeds? Those are hard questions that we'll jump into in about 50 years. Um, no, we'll get to them this summer. But this truth is incredibly practical. So what? Right? So what? What does this have to do with us? I would suggest, first of all, that if you are in Christ, even the bad things that come your way will work out for your good. Even the bad things that come your way are going to work out for your good. And now listen, there is no promise in the Bible that bad things are not going to happen to God's people. In fact, they are going to happen to us. We will be on the receiving end of evil and sin and pain. And sometimes we'll be on the giving end of that evil and that sin and that pain. But the promise of God for his people is that ultimately he's going to redeem it all and work it out for good. We saw this in, when we studied the book of Romans, that verse in chapter 8 that so many of us have memorized, verse 28. All things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And then on the heels of that are those magnificent verses that affirm God's sovereignty how he calls us and he chooses us and he brings us to salvation and he sanctifies us and adopts us as his children and promises to one day glorify us. And then he goes into that rich passage that says, no matter what comes our way, no matter if it's evil from without or evil from within, nothing, absolutely nothing will separate us from the faithful covenantal love of our heavenly father. Nothing. And why can God make that kind of promise? Because he is the sovereign God who works out his good plan in our lives and in our world. And we're to be comforted by this so that even on our worst days, we are not rejected by God. We're always loved. And any evil that comes to us does not come to us because of wrathful evil intentions of our heavenly father. It comes our way and it's under his sovereign care because he is committed to loving us and bringing about good in our lives. There's another application here. It's one that I think some of us can probably resonate with this morning, and that is that this essential truth is very, it's so counterintuitive. It is so mysterious that there are times where we are tempted to doubt it or to explain it away or water it down. I was raised as a child. In fact, I was first ordained as a pastor in churches in a theological system 
that had basically adopted teachings that stem out of Roman Catholicism and the Dark Ages. And in those teachings, man's independence, man's sovereignty, man's free will, for, as the label is given, is elevated at the expense of God's sovereignty. Because humanity grapples with this tension of how is God sovereign and at the same time, we are free agents who choose to live and sin and do these things and God isn't responsible. That's a tension. And so the natural sinful tendency of humanity is to always decrease the sovereignty of God and increase the sovereignty and independence of man. And I was raised in that kind of system, and many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are raised in this system of belief. And it is very counterintuitive to how, it's counterintuitive to how we would operate, obviously, if we were in charge, right? We wouldn't do it like this. And so we doubt it, and we water it down, even though we're the clear recipients of God's sovereign grace. We're obviously the recipients of this sovereign grace, and yet somehow we act and live and believe in a way that takes glory or tries to take glory away from God. It creates great confusion. You see some of this confusion and some of this tension in the lives of Joseph's brother in that scene after Jacob's death. And the the scriptures tell us Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. They said to him, they said to one another, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. (laughs) Yeah, right. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Yeah, right. (laughs) That isn't a clear manipulation. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they came and spoke to him. His brothers came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants, which fulfills that dream, right? That he had as a young man. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Why does Joseph begin to weep when his brothers come to him with this message? Why is he brokenhearted for them? Because clearly, Though they have enjoyed his presence and his provision and his protection, and they had been made wealthy because of who he is, and though they had enjoyed for more than 17 years now the outworking of God's plan and his grace, they still could not let go of their doubt and their fear that now Joseph was going to retaliate against them. They were grappling with God's sovereign plan and the grace that he gave them through Joseph. They just couldn't quite believe it. Because that's not how we would act, right? Not if we had the opportunity. Chuck Swindoll writes, guilt clings to the side of the boat, clawing for a foothold long after grace has come on board and begun to steer. Isn't that true, church? So often 
We are controlled by our past, feeling like we're defined by past abuses, our past life of sin. So often we feel controlled by our current struggles that we may have with sin or personal trials and tribulations that we're in the middle of. And rather than resting in the faithfulness of God and his love for us, which we receive because We are in Jesus and we are his covenant people. Instead, we revert and fall back into a performance trap. Like Joseph, we we fall down before God and we begin to bargain with him and we begin to, to live and do and not do so that maybe in some way we can induce God to bless us, to deliver us and to give us what it is we want and we begin a cycle of performance turning from God's sovereign grace to to human works to merit his favor. And so we get on this wheel of performance and failure and performance and failure and the guilt builds up and the fear builds up and the anxiety builds up all because we don't rest in the faithful love of our heavenly father. How much better it is to understand and believe in God's faithfulness to us to believe that he is sovereign and he works in and through our lives and our world, even in our sin, when we follow our desires rather than his. Because of Jesus and his righteousness that that we now have through faith, because of that, God promises to accept us in spite of our sin. He promises to never work against us, to pour out his wrath on us because he poured it out on Christ. He promises to work in and through the past and the current difficulties that we have. And he promises to never reject us. He promises to give us the grace we need to endure to even see bad things miraculously and unexplainably redeemed for our good and for the glory of God's kingdom. We saw a good example of that this morning in the testimony. It doesn't mean we don't go through dark times, difficult times. It doesn't mean that there will not be times where we question what it is that God is doing. It doesn't mean that there will not be specific times where we are tempted to doubt God's goodness and faithfulness as, as Allison testified to. I could so relate to that. Those times will happen. But what it means is that even though we go through those times and we may even temporarily turn our back on God, God will not turn his back on us. And he will continue to pursue us and love us until we have no choice but to surrender and then see how he has actually been with us the entire time. But we just couldn't see it because we weren't walking by faith. Is guilt and regret fear? Is it clawing its way back into your life, seeking to control and dominate you? Just as Joseph wept for his brothers, Jesus wept for us and he made it possible so that we need not be dominated in this way if we will simply follow him and trust him and walk by faith. If we do, he will give us a life that's filled with joy and purpose. Well, one final application this morning. The secret 
to a fulfilling, purposeful life is to walk by faith, trusting God to renew our hearts and attitudes for his glory and for our good. You know, in this whole series of Genesis, there were about half a dozen reference books and scholarly books that I use because there's a lot of people much smarter about Genesis than I am. And I would check in with them and, you know, refer and study. But there was one book. It wasn't a reference book. It was a devotional book. I read it in the mornings off and on throughout the last year, a couple of books by this author, and it was Chuck Swindoll. He wrote a biography on the book of Joseph. And my two favorite chapters in that book, ironically, was the, my favorite one was the epilogue. It was just an incredible epilogue to the book. But the other favorite chapter was the chapter that deals with this issue with Joseph and his brothers and this reunion. Phenomenal chapter. And in that chapter, he quotes Thomas Jefferson who said, when the heart is right, the feet are swift. In other words, for Christians and applying it to Christians, when the, our hearts are right with God, and we're centered on Christ, our feet, our lives, quickly are willing to obey him and we do obey him and we follow him and walk by faith. When the heart is right, everything else falls into line, right? The feet are swift. But how often is our heart not right because of something that someone did to us or is doing to us? Maybe we had parents who didn't nurture us, love us and accept us for who we are. Maybe a, a trusted loved one or an authority figure committed horrible abuses against us. Or, or maybe we have a spouse who takes us for granted and, and in any number of ways, their words that they use on a regular basis create wounds and hurt and pain in our lives. Or perhaps it's a child who rejects our love and our faith even at a point where they cut us off, cut our grandchildren away from us. Or it's a boss who treats us like a commodity that he can use and dispose of in whatever way is convenient to him for his purposes and his career goals. Or perhaps for many, it's a past experience with a church leader who sinned against you and planted seeds of cynicism and bitterness towards Jesus's bride, the church. Or maybe it's God himself. That God didn't do what you thought he would do if he really loved you and was good to you. You know, if you look at all of those examples, Joseph could relate to them all. He had all the reasons in the world and more to wallow in self-pity, to play the victim card, to pout and doubt God's goodness and his faithfulness to him. Yet instead, Joseph walked by faith and he trusted that God was who he said he was. And this happened, well, this, by doing this, this changed his attitude and his perspective on everything that he endured and that he experienced. When we walk by faith, it changes our attitudes. It changes our demeanor. It changes our perspective on what's going on. Swindoll says that when, when we are walking by faith, we are able to see by faith God's plan in our location. When we are walking by faith and are able to see God's plan in our location, our attitude will be right. And you see this with Joseph, right? How many times does he say, God sent me, God sent me, God sent me, God sent me? 
By faith, he was able to see God's plan in his location and therefore it affected his attitude. When I'm able by faith to sense God's hand, not just in my location, but in my situation, my attitude will be right. Christians, do you believe that God has made you the way you are? That he has put you where he wants you to be to do a work for him and to work out that plan and that it's going to be good for you? Do you believe that? Even in the middle of a difficult situation, do you sense his presence there guiding and providing and protecting? Well, I'm gonna give the final word in this entire series of Genesis to good old Chuck, because this is what he says. Joseph shows us that the only way to find happiness in the grind of life is to do so by faith. A faith-filled life means all the difference in how we view everything around us. It affects our attitudes towards people, toward locations, situations, circumstances, even ourselves. Only then do our feet become swift to do what is right. May God add his blessing to this teaching this year in the book of Genesis. May he mature us and grow us up into people whose feet are swift to do right. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you reveal to us about yourself, about your grandeur, about who you are, that your faithfulness to us, your love for us, your holiness your power to sovereignly superintend everything that happens in our lives. Lord, may you do a work in our hearts that causes us to trust you in a way that no matter what we experience, the good and the bad, we maintain a balance where all the glory is given to you, where we relax and we accept what you bring into our lives and how you may mature us in difficult times and how you may prosper and bless us in good times. And in all of those situations, we would be content worshiping you, serving you, swift to follow you and, to serve and commit our lives to you. May you do that work of grace in all of our lives. None of us here have arrived at that place where we can be satisfied. So would you do this as your brothers and sisters, I pray, amen.